0: happy new year wow good job waking up (laughs) I'm impressed all right my name is John um, and uh, yeah happy new year this is for me I don't know about you but this week between Christmas and New Year's is always a little strange Um, I love Christmas And so it's kind of a big letdown the day after Christmas. And you gotta start packing up the Christmas decorations and all that. But then there's also something about the new year that, uh, you know, looking forward, thinking about what's to come. uh, I'm kind of a dreamer, and so this is the socially acceptable time of the year where I can take time out and think about my plans for the year And uh, my wife's more of like in the moment. This is what we got to do, and I'm more living in the future. And so this is the time where I get to to shine and come up with my New Year's resolutions, and and it's okay to do that. Uh, And so today, uh, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're thinking about the future. What does 2023 have? What are some of your plans? What are some of your resolutions? And and we need to admit and 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 remember that we don't know the future, right? We're not guaranteed to be here this time next year. We don't know if we'll be here tomorrow, right? Our life is a vapor. James instructs us to to not say, well, I'm gonna go here, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna go to this city, I'm gonna accomplish this, but instead to remember that God is the one who knows, and, and that if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that, right? So we don't want to put trust in our plans, but the Bible also tells us that to not think about the future, to not prepare, to not make plans, to not have goals, is to be like the sluggard, like the fool, right? There's a lot of Proverbs. Uh, so look at the ant who who stores up during... The harvest so that uh, in the winter they have enough food, right? They're, they're constantly working, right? So they're planning ahead. They're looking at what's to come. So we need to make plans, but we don't want to trust in those plans. We want to trust in God. And as we make plans, as we make resolutions... I think the best resolutions are not so much about what do we want to do, but who do we want to become? Who do we want to be? How do I improve myself? What, what are your goals? Not, not just in terms of things you're going to do, but who you want to be this year. What kind of growth in your character do you want to see in 2023? And in his second letter... Peter gives us really the ultimate list of resolutions, not just for the new year, but for life, all right? And, and let's, let's look at what he has to say. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, and I'm going to start in verse 3. <clears throat> he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped for the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So here comes the list, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love all right that's that's your list right if you are a christian this is your list if you want to call yourself a follower of christ these are the things that should be used to describe your life in fact Paul says in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so what Paul is saying is is, is growth in these areas, knowledge, virtue, self-control, steadfastness, brotherly affection, Those are what make you fruitful in your relationship with God. And and ultimately, that's what we want, right? We all want to have a fruitful and productive knowledge of Jesus Christ. If not, why are we even here, right? So so if this is what we want, if these are our resolutions, if these are the areas that we want to grow in, because if we're honest, I don't think anybody here would say, yeah, I got that one down, right? We all need to be increasing in these qualities. What are the steps to becoming more fruitful in these areas? Well, I've asked that question before, and often here are some of the answers I get back. Okay, if I want to grow in my faith or my virtue or or my knowledge or self-control, godliness, love, then I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to come to church more regularly. I need to join a community group. I need to read better books. I need to listen to more sermons. I need to give more to the church. I need to share the gospel more. I need to serve more. Okay, And, and all those are are good answers. They're not wrong. But they aren't the ultimate answer. Right? Because none of them address the ultimate reason why we fail to grow in those areas. And Peter gives us the answer to why we don't grow in those areas. He gives it in the next verse, verse 9. He says... For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. See what Peter's saying here? Peter is saying that the fundamental reason why we don't grow spiritually, why we lack the qualities of someone who knows Jesus, is because we've forgotten. The gospel what Peter's doing here is he's, he's pointing us to a truth that is throughout scripture and and it's it's this we we never get beyond the gospel in the Christian life we never outgrow our need for the gospel so I thought here we are it's the beginning of the new year we want to make progress in our walk with God and and Peter comes to tell us this morning that if we want to go forward, we have to first look back. We have to remember what Christ has done for us. The Christian life is a gospel-oriented life. The Christian life is a gospel-shaped life. Before we we go any further and kind of explore how that, that works, I want to take a moment and, and just look at a couple more passages to make sure that we see this in God's Word, right? I want you to understand that this is coming from God's Word. Um, because before we look at how the gospel forms and shape us, I, I want you to see for yourself that God's Word is clear that the gospel should and does shape us. And secondly, I'll just be honest, the, the, the phrase, the term, gospel centered, gospel driven. It's almost become kind of like a a cliche or like a marketing fad in the Christian world. And 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 I think sometimes people just like will slap on that adjective gospel centered, gospel this to to sell whatever it is they want to sell you, right? And really they it has nothing to do with the gospel. But I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Because there's truth behind that phrase, gospel-centered, gospel-driven. It's a biblical truth. And so it's important that we recover it and rightly understand it. So I want to take a little bit of time here at the beginning to do that. So let's look uh, real quickly, Galatians chapter 2. And uh, just a really brief background of what's happening here. We're not going to spend a lot of time, but basically... um, Paul is writing and he's telling a story about something that happened in the church in Antioch. And basically what happened was the gospel came to the church in Antioch and people who were not Jews were receiving the gospel. And God was doing a a great work there. But then um, some representatives from the church in Jerusalem who were from a Jewish background, came, and Peter was there. And all of a sudden, Peter started acting weird and started favoring the Jewish believers over the non-Jewish Christians. And he started kind of agreeing with uh, those who said, in order to become a Christian, you had to first become a Jew, and you had to follow the Jewish laws, right? And Paul was not having that. So he confronts Peter, and uh, it says in verse um, verse 14, he says, "When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel," it says he, he opposed Peter to his face. And the point I want us to see here is that there is a way to live that is in step with the gospel. Which also means there's a way to live that is not in step with the gospel. The gospel is meant to impact, to shape how we live our lives. Here's another one Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What's a one word summary of that sentence? The gospel. Right? That's what it is. The gospel is the grace of God that brings salvation. So it says the, the gospel has appeared and it brings salvation. Okay, we all believe that. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So the gospel saves us, but the gospel also trains us it's not like we get into the Christian life with the gospel and then we get onto you know the the deeper things that actually impact our life and how we live no it's the gospel that saves us and it's the gospel that trains us so Galatians be in step with the truth of the gospel Titus the gospel trains us to say no to ungodliness Peter remember the gospel and grow all right we could go to many other places but hopefully this has given you at least a taste of of how the bible talks about the gospel and its impact on our lives this is all just to get you on board with the idea that the christian life is one that should be shaped by the gospel so what does that look like how does the gospel shape us Well, first, we have to understand the difference between the implications of the gospel and the gospel itself. If we mix those things up, we'll lose the gospel. And again, we could do a whole year series on aspects of the gospel, (laughs) right? But just real simple, the gospel, the word means good news, right? So most fundamentally, the gospel is news, all right? It's not advice. It's not commands. It's not a recipe for success. It's the glorious news that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died and rose again so that by trusting in him, we could have forgiveness for our sins and live forever with Him. It's news, and this is not just made-up news or wishful thinking. This is real news that happened in a real time with real people in real place in history. That's how uh, Paul talks about it in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. He says, "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received." that Christ died for our sins in in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is good news. This is great news. This is good news of great joy, right? But here's the thing about news, especially big news. It will always change you some way. Real momentous news will change us. I just some of you know the first time you found out that you 're going to have a baby that 's some big news. Did that have any effect on your life, how you lived your life, how you spent your time right i think I think you know it does or or Sometimes it's bad news, you get the diagnosis, it's cancer, right, that's news. That affects your life, it affects your your decisions, it reorients your priorities. Or maybe you're on trial, and the verdict comes down, that's news, innocent, you're free to go, right? or the stock market, or 9-11, right? Big news changes us. It changes our world. It changes how we live our lives. The gospel is the most earth-shattering news there could ever be. And it will shape you one way or another, depending on how you respond to it. But what does it look like to respond rightly to the good news of Jesus. How does the gospel transform those who respond rightly to it? Well, there's many more ways, and we could even start to wrap our minds around this morning. But I want to I point to three, just three ways, not the only three ways, but three ways that the gospel shapes us. And uh, I just, at this point, I want to do a little commercial. So we have... Uh, what we call missional communities. There's one that meets here on Sundays. There's another one that meets at my house on Saturdays. But basically, it's a community where we want to just explore and go deep into how does the gospel form us? How does it shape us? And then how does it send us out on mission? And so if that's something that you're interested in, please come talk to me or, or one of the elders. Um, we'd love to, to talk to you about that. But all right, commercial over. <laughs> um, So all of these three things, three ways that the gospel shapes us, it's not like step one, step two, step three. They're all dynamically related to each other, right? And they're interacting with each other um, over the life of a believer. So number one, the gospel shapes us as we grow in our knowledge of God's holiness and our own sinfulness. The starting point of the Christian life Call it conversion. It comes when we first become aware of the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness. Right? The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. We see our need for a Savior. We see how great God is, how far off He is from where we are, and we realize we could never get Him, get to Him. God opens up our mind to see how holy he is, how perfect his law is, and how far we are. We see the great chasm between holy God and our sinful selves, and we see that only he could bridge that gap for us. This is a, this is a, a chart that many of you might have seen already, but I think it very helpfully illustrates this. But at that point of conversion, our, our view... Of God's holiness and our view of our own sinfulness is relatively small. We haven't fully grasped it. We have a very limited view of God's holiness and our sin. We know there's a gap, but we just don't fully understand how big that gap truly is. But as we walk in the Christian life, the more we grow in our awareness of God's holiness and we also grow in our awareness of our own sinfulness. As we read the Bible, as we experience the Holy Spirit's conviction, as we live in community with other people, the extent of God's greatness and the extent of my sin become increasingly clear. It's not that God is actually becoming more holy or that I'm actually becoming more sinful it's just our awareness of those two things is growing over the course of walking with God. A great way to see this dynamic is in the life of Paul, right, If you put his writings in chronological order, you can see a progression. He, he refers to himself in one of his earlier books, 1 Corinthians, he calls himself the least of the apostles. But then a few years later, he's writing to the Ephesians and he calls himself the very least of the saints, And then in one of his later letters, he calls himself the foremost or the chief of sinners. Now, was Paul actually becoming more sinful over the course of his ministry? No, he wasn't. He was just becoming more and more aware of how holy God is and just how sinful he is. But here's the next question. Did a growing awareness of just how big the gap between God's holiness and his sinfulness, did that lead Paul to deeper and deeper despair? Or or was he constantly doubting his own salvation because of it? No. We go to many places in Scripture. In fact, his last book, 2 Timothy, Some of the last things he wrote before he was executed were about his confidence that he was about to meet his Savior. He was about to receive his eternal reward. He was confident because as his understanding of his sin and God's holiness grew, something else also grew his appreciation and love for Jesus. For Paul, the gospel got bigger. As that chasm got bigger, so did the bridge that crossed it. This growing view of the gospel empowers us and reorients us and shows us just how much we have been loved by God. Jesus' work for us becomes increasingly sweet and powerful. The cross looms larger and more central as we rejoice in our Savior who died on it. So I just want to ask you, just try to imagine what it would be like to wake up every day with a bigger understanding of the gospel. To wake up every day to discover you're more known and more loved than you were the day before. You think that would have an effect on how you lived your life? You think that would shape how you made choices? How you served people? How you were patient with them? How you loved them? The gospel shapes us as we grow in our understanding of God's holiness and our own sinfulness and how big his love for you is. The gospel also shapes us as we embrace and enjoy our union with Christ, right? Scripture is clear that when we put our trust in Christ, we're united to him in faith. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me or maybe spend a morning going through the first half of the book of ephesians and make a note of how many times paul talks about us being in christ or in him right it's that unity with christ what what verses like these are saying is that the good news of the gospel is ultimately not all the things we get from jesus but it's that we get jesus Sinclair Ferguson says there's no benefits of the gospel outside of the benefactor. It's our relationship with him. It's our unity with him. I'm going to get a little theologically nerdy right now, so just kind of track with me. All right, this is good stuff. Theologians call this gospel reality union with Christ. One theologian defines it this way. It says union with Christ means that... In Christ, you have been given a new identity. God has called you into a new life, rooted in a history that predates you, anchored in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You discover who you are in Christ, and you are given the DNA to prove it, the Holy Spirit. You once were lost, but now you are found in him. Another... Theological term that's very closely related to this is, is called imputation, all right? And imputation is just the concept that's talked about in places like 2 Corinthians 5.21 and other scriptures where the perfect obedience of Jesus is said to be credited to us. It's the reality that through our faith alone, we're not simply forgiven for our sins, as amazing as that is, we're also counted as righteous. Maybe you've heard it said at some point that justification means that it's as if I'd never sinned. That's correct. But in light of imputation, to be justified also means it's just as if I'd always have obeyed. Let me try to illustrate it this way. Uh, a few weeks ago, my family and I were on vacation in Japan, and uh, there's a Navy base near Tokyo. And uh, I, I had served in the Navy for 10 years, and I'd been to this base uh, quite a few times, and we kind of wanted a little taste of American food and we wanted to do some Christmas shopping, that kind of thing. So we wanted to go get on base. Uh, Which is ironic because we ended up eating Chinese food there, but uh, anyways, uh, American Chinese food. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so I I served for 10 years in the Navy, but I didn't retire out of the Navy. I I left. God called me here. And uh, my 10 years was not enough to give me access to the base. But my dad was with me. My dad served 27 years in the Navy. And he retired from the Navy. And his service was enough to cover me and my family. So we got access to the base. We got to enjoy the benefits of being on this base because of my dad's service covering us. My service was not enough, but his was. His service was imputed to me so that I was seen uh, as having access to the things that he earned. That's imputation, right? Christ's righteousness covers us and gives us access to everything that is his. So my question is, is, are you enjoying your union with Christ? Like, like, are you really swimming in it? Are you filled with the peace that comes from knowing that when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of his son covering you? That because of Jesus' work, God doesn't just accept or tolerate you. He delights in you. Some of you might be thinking at this point, well, if Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me, it covers me, and God sees me like I've never done anything wrong, then does that mean I can just sin and it doesn't matter? After all, if we're reconciled to God by grace and not by works, does it really matter whether I obey or not? Well, this isn't a new question. The Bible addresses this. Um, but 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 here's the thing, you know, we'll get to the answer to that, but but here's the thing is is those that are truly united to Christ can actually do whatever they want. Is that controversial? (laughs) Because those who are truly in Christ will want what Christ wants. Right? They will want to obey him. Someone who's overwhelmed at just how deep the Father's love is for us and is reveling in the joys of being united to Christ by faith they're not going to be easily tempted to settle for something less. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. right? That's what John 14:15 says. The person who has died to themselves and lives in Christ is given a new heart that wants what God wants and hates what God hates. They'll be disgusted by sin. Because they'll know that it's their sin that put Jesus on the cross. Why would they want to go back to that? Which leads us to a third way that the gospel shapes us. The gospel shapes us as we walk in identity-driven obedience. When we're united to Christ in faith, not only are we united to Christ, but we're adopted by God into his family. And children are given the privilege of obeying their father. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14-16, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, gospel behavior flows out of gospel identity. My kids obey me or are expected to obey me, (laughs) not to earn a place in our family, but because they already have it, right? They're my kids, and so they're called to obey me. We obey not in an effort to become someone. We obey because we have been made someone new through God's adoption of us. But again, I'm sure you've already seen the problem. Uh, kids don't always obey, do they? We don't always obey even those of us who have been given a new heart, to want what God's, God wants, we still fall sometimes. Why? Well, when my, when my kid kids disobey me, I have to remind them. Sometimes sternly, I have to remind them who they are. They're my children. They are loved. They have a father who wants what's best for them. I give them rules so that they can grow and be protected and so that they can thrive. When they sin, when they disobey, it's because they've forgotten that. They've forgotten that they can trust me. They've forgotten who they are. We sin because we forget who we are in Christ. We sin because we forget the gospel. And when we forget the gospel, what happens? think back at that chart. Does, does God stop being holy? Do we stop being sinful when we forget the gospel? No. Those, those things are still there. The chasm's still there. But if we forget the gospel, then the gap comes back. Right? And then we got to fill that gap with something else other than the gospel. And that leads to, to errors on either side. We either lie to ourselves and say that God's not all that concerned about holiness, and we give ourselves a license to give into our sinful flesh, or we lie and say that, that we actually aren't really that bad, and in fact, if I worked really hard, I bet I could probably meet God's holy standards on my own. when we forget to keep the gospel as central, when we forget who we are in Christ but we continue to grow in our knowledge of God's holiness and our sinfulness, the gap comes back. And we try to bridge that gap either through our own effort, our performance, or we try to fill it by pretending that it's not there, that God's not really actually that concerned about how we live. Another way to describe that is, is Legalism and license, right? Pretending, performing, legalism, license. Legalists continue to live under the law, believing that God's approval is somehow dependent on their right conduct. Legalists rely on their own holy living for their justification. Or licentious people dismiss the law, believing that they're under grace, God's rules don't really matter. They think that justification means that they don't have to live holy lives. Both of these errors miss the gospel and both of these errors have been around since the days of the apostles, right? The book of Galatians was written to combat the error of legalism. It says in Galatians 3 verse 3, are you so foolish after beginning with the spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? The book of Romans addresses the error of license. It says in verse, chapter 6, verse 15, What then, shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Both legalism and license miss the gospel. A true Christian obeys God's law, not out of obligation or duty, but out of love, and this is, this is actually the fun part, right, where we get to live out the implications of the gospel. We get to take the gospel out of the garage and, and take it for a spin. We get to walk in step with the good news. We get to let it shape how we spend our time, spend our money, spend our lives. If we have this big gospel, it is meant to inform how we walk. We walk in accordance to our calling. We live out of our identity as those who have been made new in Christ. And I hope as we've been walking through this today, you've already begun to connect some dots and have thought of some areas that the gospel could shape your life. But help me, I want to try to help and give like at least one example of how it's helped me and is helping me, informing me. Um, you know, I got five kids, so a lot of my illustrations involve my kids. Now, <laughs> um, Here's the thing. We, we love out of the love that we receive. That means if you love people when you think they deserve your love, but you don't love them when you don't think they deserve your love... What does that say about your view of God? Ultimately, it says that that you think God loves you when you deserve it, but when you don't, then God doesn't love you, right? So that's why you treat people the way that you do. Or, Or think about patience. If you're impatient with others, it's because ultimately you believe that your God is impatient with you. When you mess up, when I lose it with my kids and I get frustrated with them when they mess up, which only happens very rarely as a joke, it's because deep down I believe the lie that God is frustrated with me when I mess up. I've forgotten how my sin doesn't make God run from me or cast me out. But in his kindness, he runs to me and he calls me to himself and he calls me to repentance and forgiveness and freedom. I need to remember that God's not like me. He doesn't cast me off or distance himself when I fail. I can try to be more patient, but it doesn't last. What I need is to stop And remember God's patience for me. A few weeks ago uh, on the same trip, we were coming back from Japan. And all of a sudden over the intercom, um, excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, if there's any medical professionals on board, uh, please notify the flight attendants. There's a medical emergency. My wife's a doctor, so she looks over at me. She hands me the baby, and she goes running, right? She goes to help this person having a medical emergency. Now, did she run to that person because she likes medical emergencies? Does she want more people to have medical problems? No. She hates medical emergencies, but she runs toward the patient because her whole life she's been training to help people. She runs towards the sick to help them. Our God is like that. Our God hates sin, but he doesn't run from it. When his people fail and fall short of his calling, he doesn't shake his head in disappointment and tell them they're on their own. They need to just figure it out and get back to him when they've figured out their issue. Your God runs to you in your need, in your sin. He runs towards you because he came to save sinners. He loves you, and he tells you, and he calls you to confess your sins so that he might remind you of what he has done to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. His mercy is more than your sins. His grace is greater than your failures. He runs towards you in your failure in order to rescue you from it. He loves you on your best days. And he loves you on your worst days. This is the gospel. This is good news. And that news will shape and form you more and more into Christ's likeness for his glory and for your joy. Let's pray. Dear God. There's, I, I feel like I am just barely seeing the tip of the tip of the iceberg, God, and, and struggling for words to describe how big and beautiful the good news is because the good news is that you have come. And you have given yourself for us that we may be in you and you in us and we may live according to the calling that you have called us, God. Remind us what you've done for us. Remind us of what you're doing in us. And remind us that you are with us as we walk in obedience to you. God, please shape every step of this year, may we look back a thousand years from now and thank you and praise you for what you did in us and around us and through us, for your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.